listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, March 19th, 2007, Episode 11, Models of Enlightenment. In our final conversation with Daniel Ingram, he explores various models of enlightenment and weighs the relative value of these different models which we carry around with us unconsciously. Daniel also tries to answer the all-important question of, how does one practically go about becoming enlightened? Dive in and enjoy this dynamic conversation that pushes the very boundaries of what we normally consider socially appropriate Buddhism. This is part three of a three-part series. If you're interested in sponsoring our podcast, please visit www.buddhistgeeks.com forward slash advertise. In your book, um, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, you, you talk about like, two different models. One is uh, what you've been talking about, it's the limited emotional range model, where you know, the models of enlightenment talk about what actually changes in the person, like what sort of emotions are completely gone forever. And then the other model you talk about, which I think makes a lot more sense in the way that you've just described it is the non-duality model where there's some fundamental duality that's being diminished as the practice or as your sort of understanding unfolds. I was wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit about that model and and if is there any connection between the two? Is, are there any changes that happen as a result of diminishing duality? I mean, you mentioned that you can be as fine-tuned a human as possible. So I was wondering maybe what that means. Yeah, so those are those are great questions. Okay, so the, the first two are easy to answer. What's the limited emotional rage model and what's the non-duality model? How they relate is just incredibly hard to answer. Um, and then how does that relate to the ideals of essentially, you know, self-perfection um, is really tough. Uh, so the, the easy question is, so we take the standard Theravada dogma model, you know, it would say at stream entry, you, uh, you know, eliminate the first three defilements of, you know, uh, personality, uh, you know, belief and skeptical doubt and attachment to rites and rituals. And then at second path or, you know, uh, Sakadagami, you, uh, at, you know, sort of reduce uh, greed and hatred or attraction and aversion and to, you know, uh, things that are not the formless realms or the jhanas. And then at Anagami, you, in this model, you eliminate essentially uh, greed and hatred or attraction and aversion um, to everything that's not uh, jhanas or uh, formless realms. And then at Arhatship, which would be, you know, the final uh, stage of awakening in that model, the final entangling of the knot of perception, uh, you would eliminate uh, the remaining uh, five defilements, which are uh, conceit, which is a complicated word to try to translate, uh, restlessness and worry, um, attachment to the form genres, attachment to the formless genres, and something called the last veil of unknowing. Um, and so that's the standard dogma model um, that we all have gotten to inherit. And that comes from old things out of Hinduism. It's not like that's new. Um, and you see similar things in other traditions because everyone wants to say, hey, we are the amazing people. Please put food in our bowls. Um, and then you've got these non-duality models, which also occur in the early Theravada and also occur in Zen and also occur in Tibetans, particularly Vajrayana and Tantra, which really talks about everything, all the emotions and everything being part of awakening or Zen, which is, you know, very can be very, very down to earth um, sometimes about, you know, what awakening is and how unidealized it is 
And you even find the same thing in the Theravada, where these beautiful descriptions of an awakening, where they'll just say in the sound, you know, excuse me, in the hearing, there's just a sound, and the thinking, there's just the thought, and and in the seeing, there's just the scene, and there's no observer or separate self that can be found in these things. And that's a very clean, hard to argue with uh, non-duality model, and in fact, as good as it gets. And we find that, you know, in the same, you know, books of old texts that we find uh, the crazy emotional um, limited range model dogma. And so those are the, the two models and you can see they're, they're in really extreme conflict because one will say that everything has to be empty by nature. It has to be empty of a self at all times. And it's just a question of understanding that. And thus it, it's impossible to say that all the emotions that occurred weren't empty. And so, and causal and based on the fact of, you know, uh, just humanity itself and, and the human condition. And so, but then when you begin to sort of systematically eliminate the illusion of a sense of a separate continuous entity and, and just begin to see all of the experiences that you thought made up the separate you as just part of the natural, empty, luminous, unfolding cosmic dance, or however you want to say it, um, that does, that shift in perspective does bring about some kind of transformation where people do in some ways seemingly begin to take the wider world into consideration. Now, the problem is there are tons of people who are not technically enlightened, meaning they still have a sense of an observer. They still have a sense of separate, continuous self. They've never gone through the cycles who have unbelievably saintly ways of being in the world, just incredible selfless devotion to others, very broad global perspectives, you know, uh, unbelievably stainless morality. Um, and so, you know, the, the problem is, is that just a mere sort of a, you know, saintliness model or a holiness model or an I'm a wonderful person model really isn't that special because there are already people who are pretty much like that. Um, and so, you know, you've got to ask the question, what's different, you know, about uh, waking up? Well, um, and this this gets into the point that this becomes hard to sell because everyone wants something that's easy to sell. And just, you know, sort of dissolving the sense of a center point, how saleable is that? You know, why would you spend all this time doing that? And my answer to that basically is it's only people who get cross the arising and passing away somehow and pretty much have no choice at this point um, are going to do it. And it's going to happen, you know, pretty much whether they want it to or not. It's just a question of timing because that's what the universe and human physiology does, um, you know. And so uh, then tying in the two, how do they relate to each other? Why would they have come up with these limited emotional range dogmas aside from the fact that, you know, good selling points um, is very, very tricky, you know, and people who are enlightened do all kinds of terrible things. You want to need only pick up a good scandal sheet to read about, you know, Trungpa or, you know, the endless other gurus who have bit the dust and sexual scandals and drugs and money and power and, and uh, all kinds of other terrible things that, you know, people do. And then people go, oh, they weren't really enlightened. Well, some of these people's, you know, dharma is as good as it gets. You know, they're talking from a place of real knowledge. And so people go, oh, wait, this is very confusing. Well, yeah, it's because they're using an unlimited rate, you know, emotional range model or even worse, a limited possible action model, which is essentially a model that says, People can only do certain actions once they're enlightened and couldn't possibly do things like kill a fly or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, when I slaughter bugs by the hundreds on my car every day, you know, just driving to work. Um, so, and, and so those are the, 
those are sort of some attempt to to relate the models but more than that i like to sort of draw a fine distinction between them and, and assume that they really don't relate um the way our ideals want us to because our ideals are just sort of one last subtle beautiful defense against the actual facts of reality just one more fantasy to become lost in and not see the true nature of um, and I think they're very, very dangerous and end up keeping people uh, from the goal. And my goal is to get people to the goal, meaning to accept life as it is and see it as it is right now, however it happens to be. And then there's this question of Buddhahood, which is a sort of perennial carrot out there. And the notion of Buddhahood is some sort of self-perfected individual. Um, and it's a very interesting goal, and I think it's a beautiful ideal and I don't see a problem with people trying to do that. I think it's a beautiful thing to try to do that. I think it's just a, a re-expression of, you know, basic, you know, fact that we should all try to be our best, whatever our best is, and do the most good that we can, um, given where we where we are and who we are and what resources we have. Um, and I think that's a beautiful, nice thing, as long as we don't take it too seriously or have that ideal keep us from understanding things right now. So I guess my next question is, how does one go about realizing what you've been talking about? Is there a technique? Is there no, I mean, obviously you used a technique, but I'm not, I'm not sure you'd say that that was necessarily what had you realize this, but I'm guessing you probably would. So I was wondering maybe if you could just briefly, how does one do it? Well, um, I, you know, initially my response to that always is not to advocate any particular tradition. Um, because there are lots of great wisdom traditions out there, and they all share common themes. They all talk about uh, time for contemplation. Uh, they all talk about some sort of code of morality as an underlying foundation. They tend to advocate finding someone who already knows how it's done, who can tell you how to do it. Um, they tend uh, to involve some sort of uh, technique be that involves con concentration on some object, uh, that involves investigation of reality, uh, trying to be here now. Um, and all those are good things. And different people will resonate with different traditions and cultures. And so I, I don't initially like to try to advocate any technique. Obviously, I'm a big fan of the techniques that did it for me, but that's just a personal thing. Who wouldn't be? That's just normal. Um, and so I really like, you know, good old noting practice from Mahasi Saidao style tradition of Theravada Buddhism. But, I, you know, the interesting thing is the more you do this, the more you see where all the other techniques can't come from. You know, it's easy to see, you know, once you've done this long enough, why koan tra training can work for somebody or why mantras and visualization can work or why tantra can work or why even service, you know, might be some sort of long roundabout path to it. If you were paying enough attention and really staying connected with what you were doing in each moment. Um or why even devotional practices, if you got, you know, sufficiently absorbed into them might be helpful or why prayer might work. You know, you begin to see the common threads, the common universal patterns, because all those things will end up happening to you if you do this long enough. You'll go through all those things. You'll have all those things happen to you. You can begin to see why Taoist practices can work and energy practices can work and people that, you know, even do Hatha yoga and really with all the, you know, emphasis on mindfulness of the posture and careful investigation of intention and really just being in the pose in that moment. Um, and you begin to see how all these things are really trying to get at it from their own point of view and people who had different strengths and different practitioners who did it, you know, using various methods that just happened to work for them. And they, of course, taught those to people. And, and um, you can really see how all the great wisdom traditions are pointing to it. 
So I really um, try to avoid, you know, saying, hey, become a hardcore, you know, Theravada, you know, Vipassana, noting three characteristics obsessed guy like I was, unless, of course, you want some path that happens to be really fast, or at least it was for me. Um, <laughs> of course, it's kind of rough. That's its problem. Um, it's very direct, but it's a rough, straight shot kind of a ride. Um, and, you know, and all these paths have their pros and cons. They have their shadow sides. Um, they have their strange side effects that they can produce that some of the other uh, paths may not produce in the same way. Um, they have their own quirks and, you know, you may not be able to find a teacher and for that, you know, technique that you like or for whatever reason may feel drawn to something else. And that's fine as long as it works and involves, you know, really carefully being here now. Um, and so, you know, while I like my own tradition, I think the whole trick is to, to find someone who knows how it's done, um, who's very down to earth about it and straightforward about it and ask them how they did it and try to do that or, you know, read the great masters and follow the instructions. Most of them are pretty darn good if you give it enough time and effort. And I just wanted to mention um, to tell the people that are listening to this that um, that you've actually written a really uh, good guidebook on, on the specific uh, technique and the specific tradition you come out of, which is the Theravada. And it, it's probably uh, as good of any a place to start if you're if you're really interested in that sort of thing very kind of you to say so yeah so yeah did you did you have anything else that you wanted to mention i think um i think you've covered quite a bit but if there's anything specifically that you wanted to talk about or mention that'd be great i do the two points i really like to make again are that yes it can really be done um people can do this and they can even do this in some you know in you know multi-week-long retreats or a few months maybe um with enough seasoning and dedication and and really being uh willing to suffer <laughs> really being willing to stick with it no matter how bad it can get or how tricky things can be or how your mind and body can twist and tell you not to um to just stick with it when the going gets hard and make time for longer retreats if you possibly can um, whatever tradition you're doing it in, uh, your best shot is the stronger you get your concentration and the more um, of a high dose you can get in a short period of time, you know, if you're just wanting to go for it. Now, that said, extreme practice can produce hardcore side effects and instability and, um, you know, be prepared for that. And if you're not kind of the kind of person that can handle themselves well uh, when, you know, things are really hard, then consider more uh, moderate uh, gentle approaches. Um, but if someone just wants to go for it, you know, there's nothing quite like 18 or 20 hours a day of, you know, continuous practice for every single second um, of that day to really make things uh, move along. That's my, that's my big message. Okay. Got it. So do a lot of practice and a lot of retreats if, if you're going to go for it. And if you do be ready to deal with difficult side effects uh, and, and one thing you, you've mentioned is, is try not to let that bleed through onto other people in your life. Oh, yeah, that's critical. So the whole problem with the Dark Knight is people tend to externalize it. They take their own sort of existential or paradigmatic or, you know, uh, perceptual crisis and turn it into a witch hunt for those things in their life that are causing that crisis. And they take it out on their spouses and they quit their jobs and they mess up their finances and they blame their teachers and they have all these wide swinging reactions to this and that, and they can become really very interesting, complicated, um, sort of unstable, not very functional people. 
And I highly recommend, if at all possible, just don't do that. It's hard not to make a mess of your life when you're in these stages sometimes. But if one can possibly do one's best to realize these are transient, to identify them as they arise, to use good maps of this territory to help you figure out, oh, yeah, I just crossed A and P. Now I should try to avoid being a complete, you know, raving nut, um, mess everything up and should try to be kind to be, you know, people and keep my mouth shut <laughs> as much as I can and say nice things and get along. And, you know, if, if I possibly can, you know, those kinds of things are really important to remember um, because, the you know, everyone likes to paint the rosy side of spiritual practice. And I think that's really a disservice because most of it isn't. I've spent, you know, the vast majority of my life in the dark night since I was 14 or 15 years old. And even I do now, I mean, the longest phase of my practice when I cycle each day, what the arising passing away lasts a few minutes, it tops, you know, dissolutions of, you know, a few minutes. And then I spend, you know, if I'm on the cushion, I might spend 20 or 30 minutes in the dark night and then, you know, maybe five, 10 minutes in equanimity and, you know, that's it. And that's the same thing, you know, same sort of ratios when I'm walking around and those cycles occurring, you know, so you, you have to learn to navigate in that because it's where you're going to live most of your life. Um, and it's honest and it's harsh and it's true and there it is. That's a great advertisement for enlightenment. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thank you, Daniel. I really appreciate uh, taking the time to talk to me and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime, hopefully. And I really appreciate you taking time to uh, interview me and record these things and attempt to uh, get this stuff out there. And I wish you great luck with the rest of this project. Okay. Thank you so much. Yep, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye, Dan. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.cforchaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.